HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Wee Kadara, the co-owner of Make It Nice, a New York City-based hospitality group, which includes 11 Madison Park, recently ranked as the world's best restaurant, and the much-buzzed-about Nomad restaurants. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Will about why hospitality matters, the value of being a good mentor, and of course, we'll hear Will's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. One realm that Julia really didn't tackle in the food world was restaurants. She was never a chef in a restaurant kitchen. To my knowledge, she never worked in a restaurant, even as a server. She certainly dined in them often, famously visiting kitchen after kitchen, shaking everyone's hand from dishwasher to head chef. There's no official count on how many restaurants she visited, but if I had to guess, certainly in the thousands. It's this gesture, Julia's instinctive and genuine value of the human connection, which provides a direct link to our guest today. Part of Julia's gift as a great communicator was that she genuinely loved people and fundamentally believed that everyone was important, no matter how big or small their contribution. If you ever met Julia, this hit you immediately. She made you feel like you mattered, like you were the only person she cared about in that moment. Likewise, Will Guidera, with his business partner, Chef Daniel Hum, 
has built his career on valuing how people are treated. He's raised the bar on hospitality, having been trained by one of the modern masters, Julia Child Award winner Danny Meyer of Union Square Hospitality Group. I'm sure it's no accident, Will and Chef Daniel's restaurant group is called Make It Nice. But I think that's really an understatement. At their flagship, Levin Madison Park, the lanes they go to to wow guests are legendary. And by wowed, I don't just mean by the food. I mean by the thoughtful attention to the guests, even unrealized needs. So at the foundation, we met Will when he blew everybody in the room away with his homage to his mentor, Danny Meyer, during last year's Julia Child Award presentation. Having spoken so eloquently about Danny's influence on his career, I'm really delighted to have the chance to dig deeper and share, Will, and share Will's inspirational insights with you. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very excited to be here with you. So I, I wanted to start off talking today with a focus. Well, I want to talk today that because typically there's a lot of focus on who the celebrity chef of the moment is or food porn. I feel like the value of hospitality and the discussion of that has been fairly lost in the shuffle. So I thought it would be great if we could talk about that and shed more light on what I think is overlooked and kind of under-discussed importance that is really one of the most key fundamental things to making restaurants work. So I wager if you have a favorite restaurant that's been open for any length of time, it's probably more because they put great value on the hospitality than actually on the food. So, well, what do you think about that? What's your definition of hospitality? Well, you know, I agree with you um, that for a long time there, the the focus was so much on food that service and hospitality were were being lost. Um, I think like many things, uh, there's kind of a pendulum that shifts. You know, back in the day, restaurants were more about what was going on in the dining room than in the kitchen. Um, Restaurants were places where people went to see and to be seen. Uh, The maitre d' reigned supreme. The the chef was nothing but the guy in the back making the food. Um, And then, as you say, whether it was with celebrity chefs, Wolfgang Puck, the Food Network, um, the pendulum shifted. And we even got to a time, you know, back in 2004 and five, where the restaurants that were most celebrated were being celebrated almost for the fact that they didn't care about service. There were no reservations. The chairs didn't have backs. Uh, People went to the extent of saying that if you have an allergy, don't tell us about it because we will not modify our dishes. (laughs) Um, And, and that's when Daniel whom, and I met, and I think of the many things I feel blessed for in my life. It's that I got to meet, a chef who since has become my brother, my best friend, and my business partner, who not only believed in the importance of service and hospitality, but believed it was just as important as the food. Um, and I think that's been one of our great strengths, the fact that we're not a restaurant driven by the kitchen or by the dining room, but that we are equal partners um, and that we need to lean on one another. We need to trust uh, one another, and we need to agree on things. Um, and yeah, it's like the 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 full package is critical, which is pretty interesting that it, it it's fallen out of sight. Because correct me, you probably know much more about it than I do. But 
for instance, like getting three Michelin stars is you, you cannot get three Michelin stars on amazing food alone. No, for sure. Um, it, it does require, it requires having the service at that level. Um, but, but I think, I think that's actually kind of a good segue to the, to the answer to your question because there is food and there is service. Um, but then there's hospitality. Um, and service and hospitality are not the same thing. Back in the day, I was a manager at Tabla at Danny Meyer's restaurant with Floyd Cardoz, um, which used to be just next door to 11 Madison Park. And when you first become a manager, um, you know, you're interviewing people for the first time. And, and like anyone who was uh, reasonably studious, I always wanted to be well prepared for those interviews. And I always tried to figure out what is the one question I can ask that will give me the best sense of someone's character. The question I used for years was, what is the difference between service and hospitality? And the best answer I got from someone who I don't even remember whether we ended up hiring her, but she said, service is black and white and hospitality is color. Um, service That's poetic. <laughs> represents all of the technical details of how you're bringing the food to the table, how you're putting it down, the timing of the meal. Hospitality is the way you make people feel while you're doing those things. Um, we often reference the idea that we want dinner at 11 Madison Park to feel like you're coming to our home. Um, now, obviously, that would be a really amazing home. Um, but and, and there's a transactional nature in, in a restaurant that you can never fully escape. But for us, hospitality is about this idea that the people that walk in through those doors are more to us than just customers. They're a unique set of individuals who... Um, who we want to see and we want to know and we want to entertain. Um, and hospitality is where you go off script. And it's not just a series of courses you're serving them, but a collection of memories that you're trying to give them. Where, where do you think that comes from? Because I think that's quite unique and rare. And as I said in my intro, it, it's kind of this Julia characteristic that was very innate in her that she just loved people and that's where her caring came from and it was genuine where do you think is that from growing up in a restaurant family that it was instilled in you do you think it's a character thing where do you think that comes from for you i mean it comes from all sorts of different places i'm i'm lucky to have had some incredible mentors the first of which was my dad um who you know a lifelong restaurateur as you say with restaurant associates and then wolfgang puck um I wanted to be in the restaurant business since I was 12 years old, uh, but I never wanted to be a chef. I was always more enamored with the dining room. Um, you know, when you work in the dining room, you have this amazing ability to throw a big party every single night um, to create these exceptional and magical worlds and then welcome people into them. I remember the first time I went to the Four Seasons with my dad, I had my little uh, Brooks Brothers blazer with the gold buttons and they did the duck table side and they brought out the, the big cotton candy and and I left feeling like I'd been transported and the moment you feel that for the first time if you are engineered to want to do it it becomes an addiction mm. when you receive that level of graciousness you're just addicted to the idea of wanting to give it to others um and then with Danny Meyer, I mean, obviously, Danny is incredible. And You and Danny might be the only two 12-year-olds who had that view of, I want to I host 
be, run a restaurant. It, it's not it's not quite as common as wanting to be a chef. <laughs> no, it's not. But you know. But I like the analogy. I mean, lots of people love hosting parties, and there's certainly many a 12-year-old to 18 to 40-year-old who have all they could do and do that for, you know, if it was characterized that way as hosting parties, then, uh, in fact, my wife started out as an events planner because she very much enjoyed the exact same thing. Yeah, and it's like, and, and, and when you're hosting an event, um, there's only one person that's, that's really like bought into it. The one person paying the bill, the one person that planned it in a restaurant, every single person that's there, you know, more or less has chosen to be there. Um, you have, you have them They're They're, they're yours to lose. Uh, but with Danny, so I, I wanted to say what, what I got from Danny, probably most of all, which is this notion that I think a lot of people think that the creativity in the restaurant business is, uh, meant to be assumed by the chef. Um, that the creativity is in the food and the service is just perfunctory. And then Danny, I, I was inspired by this idea that you could be just as creative in the delivery of the product as the people in the kitchen were with the product itself. I think, you know, I, I love to have fun at work. I would get bored if I was doing the same thing every day. And so, you know, the idea that we can create an experience that's, that's unique to the person we're serving it to, it allows you to create endlessly on a nightly basis, and every single night will be different from the one before it or after it. And I think any time you have that in your, in your work, it makes work never feel like work. Hmm. I was going to say, do you think there's a, there's an unwritten secret to getting hospitality right? I know I was struck, actually, I recently had the pleasure of eating at the Nomad in Los Angeles. And the thing that actually I came away remembering was how, and I don't even know how you define in the roles, it wasn't our server, but it was the person who, I guess, I don't know, are they sous servers who, who sometimes bring the plates and fill the water glasses. And she was so friendly in a totally un- unobtrusive way. I can't tell you if she spoke to us or not, but there was something in that interaction that I remember it a month later. I love that. Thank you. No, I mean, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of secrets. It, although none of them are that secretive. I, I think that for us, listen, we try to just find the most, exceptional group of people we can to surround ourselves with to articulate as best we can um, what it is we're trying to accomplish culturally, technically, um, to give them the resources and the support and the training they need to be good at what they do, but then to also give them as much ownership as we possibly can um, and allow them to be their most fully realized selves at the table. And this is something that took me a long time to get to. I, I think for a while I was so maniacally focused on every single little detail that I tried to give people scripts and ask them to follow the scripts. I didn't want anything to come as a surprise to me. But then I realized that telling people how to talk inevitably results in them feeling like they're in character. Telling people what you, words to do results in them sounding inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you say, <clears throat> I mean, 11 Madison Park, we have a position called Dreamweavers, and they're a collection of artists and residents on staff who are there to create or just run errands or do anything to make the ideas that the captains in the dining room have come to life. Um, let's say that 
a guest is there with their kids and um, and it's snowing outside and they we overhear them saying that their kids have never seen it snow before. Um, the captain is empowered to send the Dreamweaver to the store and buy sleds and have an Uber SUV waiting for them at the end of their meal to take them to Central Park to do sledding. Or perhaps the captain over here is a guest say that um, they're taking a flight home after lunch that day and they realize they forgot to get their kid the teddy bear that they wanted. The captain asked the Dreamweaver to go in the back and make a teddy bear. Um, that's what I mean when I say empowerment and trust. Um, if you give people the ability and the resources to not only follow um, your ideas and help bring your ideas to life, but also to come up with their own ideas. I mean, listen, the first time a captain sees the look on the faces of the guests when those sleds are in the car outside, that feeling becomes addictive to them. If people can feel a true sense of ownership over the experiences they're creating, they're going to be that much more inclined want to see them succeed and they're going to want to work really hard to create them over and over and over again. Well, and those are the kind of moments as a guest that really stick with you a lot longer than exactly what dish you ate. But I was, I was curious, you said something about what you, what you and Daniel are trying to accomplish. And maybe, maybe you could explain a little bit. I think it's all related to what you were saying, but when you say that and when you speak to the employees, you're trying to buy into the goal. What is it that you say you're trying to accomplish other than serving great food? I mean, you know, we, we've had mission statements over the years. We believe in, in, in planning and in focus and in intention. And the mission statements for a long time as we tried to, like, get our names on the map and to really get, you know, Love Madison Park um, out there became longer and longer and longer. We wanted to be a New York restaurant. We wanted to tell stories. We wanted to have discipline and technique. And it's like, at one point, the mission statement was like 30 words long. <laughs> um, the mission statement two years ago changed to, we want to be the most delicious and gracious restaurant in the world. Um, I think that the, the restaurant business has become so celebrated. And that's a beautiful thing, the opportunities it affords all of us who do what we do for a living. It's nothing short of extraordinary. But there's times when you need to endlessly create to the point where sometimes we lose focus of the very reason we all do what we do. We want to live in Madison Park to be one of the great restaurants in the world, but at the end of the day, every single decision we make is put through that filter. Is the dish delicious? And do you feel warmly welcomed every moment um, that you're there? And I know that's overly simplified, and you can apply that same mission statement to any restaurant, regardless of. Well, but I think when you share it as something you're trying to accomplish, there's not a lot of people talking around. I mean, the, the world is is becoming, it feels like, less and less gracious and full of grace every day. So finding a room where that's one of the goals of your experience is, is quite appealing. I think, I think there's unbelievable nobility in serving other people. You know, I think at 11 Madison Park, we can help people celebrate some of the most important moments in their lives. We can help give them the grace, as you say, to forget some of the most difficult ones, even if just for a few hours. Um, we can inspire people through our attention to detail. But even more importantly, I think that we can, in our own small way, make the world a nicer place just by being unabashedly nice to the people that walk into ours. Um, and these days, that feels like a pretty important thing to try to do. 
Well, what I've also heard in, in, in what you've just said now and read before, back to what I said about Julia, that that unique ability to genuinely care about people who maybe you've done their, your homework on who they are, but but are oftentimes essentially strangers. Yeah, I, I think that it's the people that you don't know that perhaps aren't um, accustomed to eating at restaurants like ours that are the most fun to to serve because those are the ones whose memory is you can I mean you can really create amazing memories for them. And I think as long as you are organized and well trained enough where you're at the table, you can forget about all the things you need to do such that you can be fully with the person you're serving, to look them in the eyes, to see them, to to do your best to understand them. And then when you have those cues when they give you those little gifts of knowledge that you can turn around into an exceptional memory to actually, you know, do something with those pieces of information. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of places where it's clear who the VIPs are and who the VIPs aren't. Um, and we want to create a world where the restaurant isn't cool because of the people that walk into it, but we are all cool based on the community that we create once we're there and we're together. Hmm. Do you, do you think that's a lot about what you're trying to accomplish with this kind of um, mission statement of deliciousness and, and graciousness that ultimately you're trying to get people to join your community, whether it's at 11 Madison Park or Nomad or one of your other restaurants where they're buying into this idea of the wider community of hospitality of being together at the table. I mean, I I think what I'm saying is just that when you are in our world, you are a part of our community period. And no matter who you are, no matter how well we know you, we're going to work just as hard to try to make sure that we give you an experience that is really, really special. I mean, that's the thing, you know, I always talk about the idea of giving gifts because I think that's the business that we're in. Um, And there are the people, you know, in the holidays that are so excited to give a gift and there's the people that are so excited to get a gift. And I think that they're just as selfish as one another because for me, my favorite thing about giving gifts is the pleasure I get from watching the look on people's faces when they receive them. Um, And so if we can just, gather together a group of people on our team that are all similarly aligned, then no matter who it is that we're creating experiences for when they walk through our doors, we're just as excited. I think that's what I mean when I say community. I mean, when you are in the room, you're a part of our world and, um, and we're so excited to serve you. That, that's a lot of positivity, which is much needed. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Will about the value of being a mentor. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We are back in Leo and Lucy's Test Kitchen pit Bob's Red Mill protein pancake and waffle mix against pancakes made from scratch using Bob's Red Mill unbleached white all-purpose flour. Now, I'll admit that putting made from scratch up against pre-mixed, not exactly a fair challenge, but we were curious how they would stack up. 
to make things tougher, Bob's Red Mill Protein Pancake Mix is made with whole wheat pastry flour, which is always going to be denser than white flour. The results? Well, for starters, even the white flour batter looked lustrous compared to our grocery store brand standard. It produced light and fluffy pancakes that Leo and Lucy devoured. Now, they also had no trouble wolfing down the pre-mixed pancakes, proclaiming them as delicious, albeit a bit spongier and denser. Leo and Lucy's verdict? The mix stands up to the homemade, but Bob's Red Mill, unbleached white, all-purpose flour, does make for a superior pancake. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products, including their unbleached white, all-purpose flour. Last fall, when Will paid tribute to Danny Meyer at the gala presentation of the Julia Child Award, um, he blew everyone in the room away with his speech. And so, Will, you spoke very emotionally about how working with Danny changed your life. So I wanted to sort of share that conversation a little bit more widely and a little bit more of your thoughts on that. So you, you already mentioned working with Danny before, but how did having him as a mentor really help you in your career? I think that no matter how motivated we are as individuals, there's a real importance um, in finding the special people along the way that inspire you and who you will work effortlessly to try to make proud. Danny, I mean, he taught me so many things and it's almost cliche to call Danny a mentor because I know that he's played that role for so many people. Um, for me as an individual, though, he saw something in me at a very, very early age that I'm not sure many others would have seen. Um, and even as I was growing up and I went through all the, you know, various phases that one does as they mature, whether a hot-headedness or, um, I mean, you know, the, I think that's the same for everyone. But Danny always had a certain patience with me and an unparalleled trust. Do, do you think he recognized a sort of kindred spirits going back to that 12-year-old self who, who, who wanted to, to run restaurants or venues? I mean, I'd like to think so. It's a little bit indulgent to say, but yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, I think the thing that just it, it just was so inspiring to me was a the fact that you know I came up in different restaurants and which had different cultures and working with Danny and seeing the way that he led it showed me that you didn't need to do things the way that they had been done um, you could just decide for yourself what does right look like and do that. And if you believe in it with every ounce of your being, then that on its own made it okay. Um, and so, to, you know, to, to watch Danny lead with empathy and with trust and to have him refocus the conversation on all the things that we all know he has. I mean, <clears throat> that was one of the many things that opened my eyes to the fact that you don't need to you need to honor what's been done before you, but then you are capable of taking it in whatever direction you choose. Um, 
so long as you believe in it enough. I think the other thing that Danny did, which was so inspiring to me, was he he, he put up, a lot of bosses, they put up the guardrails. It's almost like when you're at the bowling alley, you know, those things that come up so you can never roll a gutter ball (laughs) that the kids use? Yeah, yeah. Danny never had that. Danny would trust you before you'd necessarily even earned all of his trust, and he'd allow you to throw a gutter ball, but then he would be there to teach you what you needed to have done differently. Um. And I think there's power in allowing people to make mistakes because it shows trust and you can't really learn unless you roll a gutter ball every once in a while. Well, and that shows a huge amount of confidence as both the leader and who's ever the person ultimately in charge. You you have to really, like you said, believe in what you're doing to, to take that risk, to let other people take that risk for you. Yeah. Yeah, it was I was struck by you just said it again here, and you said it in your speech. But I think it's it's something that's not you. Many of the other things I think you said come up with mentors and what makes a great mentor. But you talked about one of the key things you talked about is the value of conviction, and you were just mentioning that. But I, I thought, could you elaborate on like why why do you think that having that kind of conviction and what you said, you know, the what right looks like. Why why is that so important, both to being a good mentor and, and, and playing into being, you know, doing great hospitality? I mean, so I had this one conversation with Danny. It was when I was at Tabla. I'd only been there for about a year. and I forget what we were talking about. I think it was my next, the next step in my career. Because um, I worked for Danny for a couple of years. I left for a couple of years, and then I went back. And... He could tell that I was overly intellectualizing the decision. And at one point in the meeting, he just pokes his finger right into my, into my gut. And he goes, hey, stop focusing on what's in your head. Listen to your gut. Um, listen, I, I believe that people crave leadership. Um, there's so many people out there wanting to do extraordinary things and they're, they're trying to find someone to follow. And authenticity and leadership comes when you believe that the person you're following believes enough in themselves to have the conviction to follow their gut. Um, because oftentimes the right answer is there. And if you overthink things too much, that's when you run the risk of making mistakes. And, I think that Danny had an idea, a a vision of what he believed the world should look like. And he was convicted enough in that to do whatever it took to create his version of that. And, you know, if you focus too much on the data to figure out what your next step should be, you're never actually creating truly a genuine expression of yourself. And I'm not sure if that answers your question. Well, I think it does. It does in a really interesting way. It was making me think of, I was having a conversation with someone admittedly after a yoga class who, who was very intellectual, but they were saying this whole idea that you can separate rational thought from emotion is ridiculous. I mean, it's an enlightenment thinking, but that ultimately human beings are ruled by emotion and rationality is and logic are exist 
but they're not the driving forces behind human behavior. And I think some of the things that you were talking about in terms of craving leadership and how you lead and following your gut is a lot about emotional instinct, no? Yeah, I mean, I do believe that some decisions need to be made unemotionally. <laughs> um, but I think conviction is about knowing which ones need to be made emotionally and not being scared um, to follow your heart. Wow, I think that's a great definition of conv- <laughs> conviction. I also think it's fascinating, too, to think about the fact that you were talking about people craving leadership, and one could say, oh, well, that's assuming everyone who is a follower craves leadership, but other leaders don't. But the irony is, if you look at Danny's example as a leader, and I assume now you and Daniel's examples of leaders, is that you sort of have, they have to be groomed in a certain way through examples, but that one of the best ways to do it is through empowerment, like you were talking about getting your employees to really own the mission and to give them the freedom to do it. it, it it's a un, it's, it's a counterintuitive idea of defining leadership. Yeah. I mean, I, I, by the way, I think everyone needs to know when to be a leader and everyone needs to know when to be a follower. Um, no matter how exceptional a leader you are, you need to know when to put your follower cap on. And Daniel and I have that with one another. I have that with the people in my team. I don't think you can be a great leader unless you're confident enough to turn that off and know when someone else has a better, you know, sense of the road than you do. Um, I think the greatest leaders are those that are confident enough in themselves or they welcome the idea of being challenged by their team. Um, and I can't imagine a world where you never allow that because it gets lonely at the top. You, you get to a certain point in the hierarchy of your company where there's no longer anyone above you who's getting paid to fill your gas tank. Um, and, and we all need inspiration. We all need to be uplifted. We all need to be refocused regardless of how long we've been doing something or how well awarded we are for having done it. And you can find leadership and the people above you in a hierarchy, but you can also find it in the most unlikely places. I think inspiration is like, just picture yourself walking through Times Square, and there's about a million people walking in the other direction, passing you by, and your life is kind of determined by which ones you grab onto and you don't let go. And so inspiration and leadership, if you know that you need it, and if, you're, if, you, if you allow yourself to be confident enough to embrace the fact that you need it. It's just about seizing it when it's put in front of you. Mm, more poetry. Well, on that note, I wanted to ask you what, what's coming up next. It seems like I haven't studied it in depth, just an anecdotal impression that the opening of Nomad Los Angeles has gone well and wanted to know from there what's happening next. And are you guys pursuing full moguldom and going to be like Oprah? What, what's coming up? <laughs> No, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I think we're trying to figure it out. I know we're trying to figure it out. Um, the having having achieved the number one restaurant award at Eleven Medicine Park at this stage in our careers is one isn't at once electrifying and also. Um, it's hard because you set impossible goals for yourself on. When you reach them, um, it's, it's, 
so satisfying, and then it's also almost a little depressing because then you need to figure out where to go next. How do, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you guys feel like you top that, or do you feel like you can retire? No. Well, it, the last okay, we've opened Nomad and Made Nice and Nomad Los Angeles. But if I could distill down into one line, what the goal of the last ten years of my life has been, it was to create the best restaurant we possibly could at Eleven Madison Park. And and now for me, the focus is shifting to doing the same thing, but as a company. Um, and I think that there is a threshold um, as far as size is concerned that, you know, especially in a business that's so based on the people like ours. Um, and so we want to grow enough that we can continue giving our people the opportunities that they deserve. And, you know, we, we don't want the band to have to break up and the band gets bigger and so we need to have more restaurants. But we also don't want to grow so big that, A, we don't feel an exceptional sense of pride in the restaurants we create, but B, um, that we no longer have the capacity to make sure that the experience of the people working for us um, is any less than, than what we've always wanted it to be. And so, you know, we, we love Nomad. I believe that Nomad is, is a real opportunity to um, kind of create uh, what fine dining looks like for our generation um, to kind of find the intersection between like, you know, uptown and downtown and give people all the luxury and magic, but done in a more casual and accessible way. Um, we are far from done at 11 Madison park. I think that an award like that, it's kind of a fulcrum. Like you, you spend 10 years building the fulcrum and then you have it, you have the, um, well, and then you sort of have a target on your back, as Thomas Keller sort of experienced with with per se, which is now everyone is maybe maybe not totally gunning for you, but certainly scrutinizing how it moves forward. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that listen, there uh, that will always be the case to a certain extent. But you also just need to decide how you want to view the world, and you can get to a place where all you focus on is the fact that people are going to try to tear you down, or you can say, now we, we have the reputation and the resources that now we finally have the leverage we've always wanted to create the thing that we've always wanted to create. I mean, the first thing we did when we cut number one in the world was we closed the restaurant down and renovated it. Um, because we want to be there for a really long time and we never wanted to grow stale. And, and now, I mean, people around the world look to us as, as something of real significance. And so, now it's time to bring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward. Yeah, I haven't been there in a long time. I look forward to going back. So, I hope that you get back soon. I'm really proud of the team there and what they're doing on a nightly basis. It's it's fun for me at this point in my career to hear about things that they're doing in the dining room um, and be as surprised and delighted by them as the people they're doing them for are. That makes me very very proud. I, I can I can imagine. So we're going to come back, and after the break, Will is going to reveal his Julia moment. We'll be right back. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig 
and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate Pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how Julia inspired, inspired them in their careers. And Will's talked a lot about inspiration, so I'm interested to hear what he's chosen. Will, what's your Julia moment? So my, my Julia moment is not an individual moment, but more a collection of them. Um, so I was, uh, I was the general manager of the cafes at Nomad. Or, I'm sorry, at, at uh, the Museum of Modern Art. Um, when I was tapped to go be the general manager at 11 Madison Park. And when I went to 11 Madison Park, I was the only guy on the team. I was the general manager, so they all worked for me, but they had all come from much more fine dining pedigrees than I had. Um, to the point where a lot of my ideas um, were perhaps more playful than they wanted them to be or less serious than they thought they needed them to be. And it's in moments like that that you need to seek confidence or comfort or, as we've been talking about, conviction um, from other people. And I don't remember the first time I saw Julia on television, but there's a quote by Maya Angelou that one of Danny Meyer's partners, Paul Bowles Bevan, always used to use. They'll never forget. They'll forget what you say. They'll forget what you do. They'll never forget how you made them feel. And so I remember how she made me feel. Um, and that was that here was this larger than life woman who had stolen the hearts of the world in discussing something, French food, that had always been taken so, so, so seriously, but she made people fall in love with it because she had the confidence to not take it seriously. She had this unbelievable ability to not care that people thought that something needed to be more religiously honored than she did, but just to make it fun, just to make it engaging, just to make it accessible. Um, She approached her life and her work with a certain zeal and enthusiasm and hilarity. She broke all the rules and effectively recreated something that so desperately needed to be recreated. And that's what I've always tried to do with four-star service at 11 Madison Park to 
take what I do very, very, very seriously, but never take myself seriously at all in my pursuit of it. And to surround myself with a group of people that are aligned in that endeavor. Um, well, I think that's a fantastically thoughtful Julia moment. I think so true. Her, her, her value was never about how starched and formal something could be. It was how much reverence you had for something you loved, but that it could always be experienced in a fun way. And thank you for, for that very thoughtful Julia moment. My pleasure. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I've had a good time too, and I'm just inspired by what you guys do. And that night in DC honoring Danny um, stands out as as one of the highlights of the last couple of years. And so, thank you so much for having me. Well, our pleasure, and thank you for saying that. And uh, we've we've done three years of magic. We hope to keep going this year on November first, and hope you might be able to join us or join us in the future. And we thank all of you for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at juliachild on Facebook and at juliachildjcf on Twitter. Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you want to learn more about Will and his restaurant group, go to makeitniceNYC.com. You can click away from there, even book a table if you're so bold. If you want to follow Will on social media, his handle is at Will Guidara. It's G-U-I-D-A-R-A on Twitter and Instagram and at Will Guidara on Facebook. If you'd like to watch the video of Will's speech and ode to Danny Meyer from the 2017 Julia Child Award Ceremony, we'll post it on the Foundation's Facebook page. Well, actually, it's there. We'll repost it so it's easy to find. Thanks to WGH for WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover us. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Again, we're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. And downloads are always available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.